Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the largest private sector investment in Canadian history. I'm talking the LNG Canada project underway in BC. Oh, what a wrinkle we've hit on this one now. The second phase of the project, the company has announced, will be powered by natural gas, not electricity. They say they don't have the electricity to power the turbines up there for phase two of the project. Uh Uh-oh. If they're going to burn natural gas to power this thing, there goes BC's climate change emission targets. Premier David Eby was asked about it this week. Does he support the expansion of this project here? What about climate change? Listen to his um, non-answer here. Ensuring that we have foreign direct investment across an array of industries, including in LNG, uh, is an important part of how we're going to have a strong economy going forward. But another piece of that, obviously, is our climate targets. Uh, LNG Canada already was permitted by a previous government. They are going to make their final investment decision and uh, and we'll watch for that. <laughs> He's going to watch for it. Okay, that's uh, not that reassuring. This is a lot of money and a lot of jobs on the line here. Let's discuss this now. We've got both sides of it for you. Alice Ross, Liberal MLA for Skeena. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Alice. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing good. Thanks for coming on. Also, Adam Olson on the line. Adam is the Green Party MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. Adam, thank you for being here. Morning, Mike. Good morning, Alice. Okay. okay, good morning, gentlemen. Alice, let me go to you first. You support this project, right? You think the, the government should, should not... What do, what do you think about the signals coming from this government here now? Uh, it's par for the course. The LNG has been a political football ever, ever since 2017. And you, you can't tell me that the NDP didn't know that this was going to come up sooner or later. In fact, it was true that the BC Lobos <laughs> did approve the permitting, but LNG Canada would not have been possible without the NDP giving up this huge tax incentives, $6 billion in PST tax breaks, carbon right. credit breaks. So they had to know this was a problem, and they did nothing about it. And now it's, it's come home. Adam Olson, what do you think? You're opposed to it, right? Sure am, and I can confirm exactly what Ellis just said, that the BC NDP absolutely knew uh, that this decision was going to be in front of them. In fact... Uh, when the former chief of staff to John Horgan, Jeff Meggs, came into the BC Green Caucus office and told us that they were uh, going to hand out those $6 billion, or they were going to put a bill to, to hand over the $6 billion in credits, as, as Ellis just outlined, uh, he was giddy that they were going to be able to get you know this project across the finish line, a project that the BC uh, Liberals weren't able to get across. And when we asked about the, the fact that there were four trains or two phases of this project approved, but that only the first phase of this project fit within uh, the the climate targets and the emission targets that the BCNDP had committed to. Uh, We were basically told that we were going to cross that bridge when we get to it. Well, we're at that bridge. We're standing looking at the bridge right now. And, uh, you know, Premier Eby's response is uh, entirely disappointing and, um, you know, co- completely out of uh, out of exactly what Ellis just said, which was the BC NDP knew exactly what they were getting themselves so, so, into so in twenty seventeen. So, therefore, Adam, you think what the, the government should say? No, you can't build phase two of the project now because it's going to blow our climate targets. Is that right? 
Well, I mean, what we're saying is that uh, B, uh, David Eby needs to follow through on the words that he said in his last in the leadership race just a few months ago, and that was that in a climate emergency, building new fossil fuel industry is uh, building new fossil fuel infrastructure is absurd. And so, you know, what what we're asking for the provincial government to do is, and 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 specifically Premier David Eby, uh, to uh, follow through the words that he's saying with the actions. Okay, Alice Ross, what do you think? Do you think they, the government should give a clear signal that, you know, we want this, this expansion, we want the phase two of this big project to be built? This is a lot of jobs on the line here. Yeah, and including economic reconciliation of First Nations. I mean, right. nobody seems to remember that in 2004, it was First Nations that came up with the idea of exporting, not importing LNG to Canada, but exporting to countries that really needed it. It was the Heisla that actually promoted this, and then we got other... First Nations on board from Prince George to Kitimat and those uh, the even further down channel. But take it back a bit. The political football I'm talking about, this would not have been possible. LNG Canada Phase 1 or Phase 2 would not have been possible without the support of the Green Party. The CASA agreement that they signed with them actually put the NDP in government. In fact, LNG Canada had stalled <laughs> its final investment decision because they knew there was a change in government coming. The BC yeah. Liberals did not want to give tax breaks to LNG Canada. They did not want to give them a carbon credit break. And the support of the Green Party for the NDP actually made this happen in British Columbia. Oh. So now to say that what the British say is false. The bridge oh. was in 2017. Adam Olson, what do you say? This is your fault, apparently. Yeah, absolutely my fault. We had two parties, two establishment parties in this province that both supported LNG. Yeah, so Ellis can do what he wants to try to shift responsibility onto the BC Greens. We forced what was it, third, twelve, thirteen votes. You were you were uh, in the press gallery at the time, Mike. We forced vote after vote after vote to the uh, uh, so that the BC NDP were clear on what it was that they were voting for. The three BC Greens voted against every single one of those votes to hand over this uh, this incentive. Uh, to uh, to LNG Canada. Ellis is absolutely right. The BC NDP uh, ended up giving more than what the BC Liberals were prepared to give. But, yeah. you know, and I think it's convenient to, to overlook the fact that at, at, on one of those votes, the BC NDP and the BC Liberals stood uh, together for LNG while the BC Greens left the uh, left the room entirely. So okay. Ellis okay. is well, responsibility to us, but it's on the shoulders of the BC NDP right now. Okay, I think the thing that's most important to a lot of people is this is a big project with a, a lot of jobs and a lot of money on the line. Ellis, we just listened to that comment from the Premier here, David Eby. He was asked about the expansion of this no. project. Does he support it? And you couldn't get a straight answer from the guy. Do you think, Ellis Ross, do you think that Premier David Eby should make a clear signal right now that we, we this project is approved and we want it built to its completion? Oh, without a doubt. After what, 15 yeah. years of doing this? And especially when we're talking about the climate crisis. The climate crisis is actually affecting countries like India, who are going through rolling blackouts. Asia, China, who have been demanding, begging for energy for the last 20 years. It wasn't called an energy crisis back then. What's really making this more provocative right now is that Europe is actually going through an energy crisis right now as well. And guess what? Everybody's going back to coal, to dirty fuel. And all along, First Nations have been saying, hey, great, there's a great clean energy source here in Canada. We should yeah. be able to supply that to the world it, and help lower emissions from those countries that are burning dirty fuels. 
This is a Adam. global issue. It's not a BC issue. Adam, go ahead. Quick reply there. Uh, pre, pre, yeah, pretending that uh, that coal is far dirtier than than uh, fracked gas is is also a, a stretch. It's not. Uh, the reality is, is that if you want to start accounting at, at um, burning and the emissions created by burning this gas, then perhaps you can get to the uh, creative accounting that Ellis is trying to put out for everybody. But the reality is, if you count the entire life cycle of uh, fracked gas uh, from the from uh, hauling it out of the ground and uh, all the way through to burning it, then it, then that's just not the case. The other thing is, is that, you know, we just saw uh, the agreement with Blueberry River First Nation. What the fracking industry is doing to northern British Columbia is atrocious. Uh, the cost to uh, restore all of the lands that they have disturbed, that's also on the backs of, of uh, taxpayers here in British Columbia. Hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to, to come in and clean up after these companies. So okay. this idea that this is about jobs in the economy, Mike, I, I reject that framing. This is about uh, new fossil fuel infrastructure and a climate emergency, and it just doesn't make any sense. All right, I want to thank... Mike, 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 go ahead, Ellis, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Rebuttal. You know what? That is really easy to say when you're in down, down the southern portion of Vancouver Island where jobs are not a priority. When First Nations are suffering through poverty well, and actually committing suicide because they don't have a future, when they don't have any access to any type of uh, uh, opportunity, like every the rest of BC or Canada for that matter, it's really easy to say that when First Nations all across Canada, uh, at least 80% suffer from poverty. It's really easy to say that. And that's the political football we've got to get around. Well, the income calculation no. has done more no. for First Nations with LNG, with Force. What do you mean, no? Well, I, I reject no. that. What, what, have you come to my village and actually talked about the facts? Have you come to my village and looked at the facts before LNG and Forestry and then come to see what we're living like now? Adam, go ahead with a quick response. The provincial government is undertaking a new fiscal relationship with Indigenous nations. This idea that the only way Indigenous nations should have wealth is by uh, oh, get off that. With government handouts? Get off of that. Is, That's a paternalistic attitude that should have been killed off not. 20 years ago. Accessing revenue okay. from government handouts. Come on. That's the Indian Act. It's not government oh. handouts. I'm not talking okay. about government handouts. All right, gentlemen, I, I know you want to keep going at it here, but we must end it there. But I do appreciate both of you being here for a good discussion. Thank you, Ellis Ross, Liberal MLA for Skeena. Adam Olson, Green Party MLA, Saanich North in the Islands. All right, let's talk about the campaign for means-tested traffic fines now. The B.C. City Councillor who says traffic fines should be tied to your income. Should a rich driver pay more for a traffic ticket than a poor driver? BC City Councilor says the rich should pay up. Okay, now here's the argument here, okay? Let's say a cop catches you using your phone at a red light. Well, that's a $368 ticket for distracted driving. For a lot of people, that's a lot of money, especially if you're a low-income person. But what if you're a rich guy? What if you're driving a Lamborghini or a Ferrari? 368 bucks, that's nothing. That's like chump change. So therefore, you bring in a sliding scale, a means-tested traffic fine. Got Grant Gottkutrude standing by to talk about it. Have a listen to this here now. This is Saanich City Councilor Teal Phelps-Bonderoff. 
If you give yeah. a $100 ticket to someone who's making a million bucks, sure, the value is the same. But if we actually want to have the same deterrent effect and stop that person from breaking the law in the future, the number is going to have to change based on income. Okay, so he says, look, you're not going to stop that rich driver from speeding again if the ticket doesn't mean anything to him. You have to crank up the amount, make it hurt. Let's discuss now with my guest, Grant Gottgetru. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com is his website. Grant, thanks for coming on again. Always a pleasure, Mike. Okay, Grant, what do you think of this idea? Well, I had I had to look at the calendar because to, to, I thought it was <laughs> April first because uh, <laughs> there's I mean he can't be serious he's he's trolling he's trolling us isn't he because oh he's, he's serious he says look they do it in other countries have have a listen to this year now like Finland is a very prominent example okay so in Finland they have this system that if you are stopped in a traffic violation your ticket is based. On your on your income. So let's have a listen to Councillor Bondaroff talking about that in Finland here. Have a listen. For example, um, in 2015, a Finnish businessman, um, he has an annual, annual income of 6.5 million euro. He was going 65 in a 50 zone, and he got dinged with a 54,000 euro ticket. You know, this is the kind of person where a $300 ticket might mean a slightly less good dessert wine. Um, but he's going to think <laughs> twice before he, uh, you know, he, he speeds again because $54,000 might be a particularly nice uh, Greek vacation. Okay, so he's saying, like, you got to make it hurt. Like, if it's, if it's too low and you're a real rich person, you're not even going to feel it. What do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, we don't know what the rules are over in these other countries regarding do they have penalty points as well on, on top of the speeding ticket? Do they get prohibited if they get too many points? I mean, the reality is the only way for – well, the police aren't going to know roadside – what your income is unless suddenly they have access to their computers to your annual tax return from the year before. Right. right? So they're going to base, I mean, it's just, it's just so ludicrous on so many levels. It's like, okay, so you drive an expensive car. That means you're rich. Um, you know, okay. So then the rich folks will now drive, you know, a cheaper cars. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's, 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 it's another, I know he said, I know he said, Oh, it's a way to, to, to deter. Right. Uh, the, the, the fines are designed to deter. No. No, the fines were put in place back in the late 80s. Before that, you just got points. It's the points that act as the deterrence in BC because the more points you get, your, your premiums are, and then you lose your license, and that's how it works. Um, and as for his argument that, oh, well, you know, lower-income people, you know, that fine is going to hit them harder, Okay, right. well, there's an easy there's an easy fix to that. Don't break the law. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I made the argument. Yeah, I mean, he makes the argument that it's disproportionate, but I mean, if you think about it on the other side, it's it's actually perfectly proportionate because if you run a red light, no matter what your income is, you're still getting the same you're still getting the same ticket, same amount of fine. So in that case, well, you're it's, getting it's the points, proportionate. Which is, which is yeah. Yeah, and and the, and and the superintendent of motor vehicles decides based on how many points you have, whether or not you're going to lose your license or not, and that's where it's going to hit you. That's where it's going to hit you. It's not. I mean, the fines are not designed to be a deterrent. It's the points. Because Speak. if the fines if the fines were meant to be a deterrent, then yeah. there would still be no points for using an electronic device because it had no points when it first came in. Now it has four points. Has that deterred people? Nothing deters people. As long as we have free will, 
We're going to do what we want. Okay, speaking of driving a fancy car or an expensive car, do you think that if they brought a system in like this, like, okay, so the police officer knows that if I catch a high income, if I catch a rich driver, the fine's going to be higher. Do you think those police officers then might start saying, well, hang on, I'm if I see a, like a high-end Mercedes or, or some fancy sports car like a Ferrari go by, oh, I'm going to get that guy because I know it's going to generate a higher fine. You think they could start pulling over like fancier-looking vehicles? Oh, for the, for, for the chance to write a $5,000 ticket? I'm sure some would. I don't yeah. think... I don't think most would, but like in anything, I'm, I'm sure there are some uh, officers out there that would salivate at that opportunity. But, but again, how would it even be implemented? It just, it's ludicrous. It makes absolutely no sense. And I don't care what other countries do because there has to be a lot more digging as to what the rules are over there in other countries. It's like, it's like complaining to your parents, well, but, but little Johnny, my friend next door, gets all this. Why don't I? It's like, uh, that's not your role as a politician. Just, you know, stay in your lane. Speaking of little Johnny, like, what if your your parents are rich? Like, what if you're uh, some rich kid and your parents buy you a fancy sports car, but you don't have any income yourself, and then you rack up a, a speeding ticket? Then what do you do? I mean, do you charge? Would the ticket be based on the kid's income if the kid has no income or do you base it on your parents income like this starts to get complicated well of course it does there was zero thought put into it that's why it's just here here i'm going to give an idea out there and get my name out there in the in, in headlines because we don't often hear from uh smaller municipality uh councillors it's normally the big municipality so it's like no there's so many there's so many it's it's so ludicrous that that uh, you know like it would have to be tied to your income, your 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 uh, tax returns. Now we're going right. to have what the police accessing that? How are they going to know that roadside? Yeah, yeah. This is where it gets it, it turns into like a potential bureaucratic nightmare. Let me play another clip here for him. So this is Saanich City Councilor Teal Phelps Bonderoff, and he says, "Look, what we're trying to do is cut down on road deaths and injuries. And if you bring in a system like this." it's going to create a stronger deterrent for people not to speed or drive in a dangerous fashion. And he says, look, if you take a look at other countries in Europe that do this, and there's a few of them over there that do this, he said they're having a better result. They've got safer roads. Have a listen to his argument here. So he talks about Denmark here, which has this system. Have a listen. Denmark, which has a comparable population, 5.8 million people, they had 163 road fatalities in 2020. Compared to British Columbia, we're about 5 million uh, folks as well, we had 249 deaths. So mm. I'm not saying that this is the only thing that's making roads safer in Denmark, but they're clearly doing something a bit better than us. Grant, what do you think of that? Well, of course they are. They, it's probably extremely difficult to get a driver's license in those countries. They probably have an, a higher age to get your driver's license over there. I've always said for decades it's far too easy to get a driver's license in british columbia mm. far too easy but if you want to talk about deterrence right yeah. it, the final seven years of my career i impounded over 2100 vehicles for excessive speed did i make an impact no i made a name for myself <laughs> but there's still people speed countless speeders countless excessive speed it's it's just like i said it's about free will it's who we are as a people 
Okay, so you think that when when you talk about it's too easy to get a driver's license in BC, you think it we should have better tr- driver training? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, first right. of all, we every person who, who applies for a driver's license needs to go to a proper uh, driving school. None of this. My my dad taught me how to drive. Okay, so now you've got all these bad habits, and 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 of course raising the age the the, the age to get your driver's license should be equivalent to the age that you're able to vote. So what's that? 18? Adults. An adult in Canada is 18. There you go. 18 years old. I know all the 16-year-olds out there are going to whine and snivel. But you know what? Too bad. So you raise the age, you go through a driving school, you make the test really hard, and what you test them on is what's killing most people in in the province. The the province has easy access uh, through the coroner service to find out what is the what are the top three things that are killing people driving wise? And that's what you test on. Uh, and what are those three things? I couldn't tell you. I would say oh. speeding. <laughs> yeah. Speeding. Speeding's got to be up there. Well, yeah. Speeding, alcohol, uh, not wearing your seatbelt. I mean, running red lights, going through intersections, not knowing how to properly yield. All of this stuff is, you know, like when you merge onto a highway, make sure you come to a full stop before you get on, right? Isn't that what most people do? <laughs> okay, lots of calls on income testing, traffic fines. Let's go right to them. Randy in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Randy. What do you think? Yeah, hi, Mike. No, um, your guest was saying, well, oh, well, the cop may have to have access to your um, your income level, your Revenue Canada information. Well, that's not true at all. Like right now, every British Columbian pretty much is signed up for Fair Pharmacare to help you help subsidize your your prescription medications and such. And when you go to your drugstore, you pay your, you get your drugs. The pharmacist gives you a bill. You pay it. You leave. The pharmacist doesn't have access to your income levels. It's all done by computer. Yeah. It's like a, that's a non-issue. Okay, thank you for that, Randy. Well, I suppose you could figure out a system here to make to make it work. I don't know. I, I started thinking though about people who hide their income offshore, you know, and sort of tax havens. How do you deal with that? Let's go to another call, Jim and Chilliwack. Hi, Jim. What do you think? <laughs> Good morning. Um, you know, this city councillor that's floated this idea, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing his extensive knowledge and background and experience in driving. I mean, I've, 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 I had a class one license in 1977 when I was 19. Um, when he compares BC and Canada in general to these uh, countries, Finland and Denmark, he fails to understand the training and the way they treat driving over there. They treat it seriously as opposed to what we do here. They train they train drivers in all aspects of driving. They get time behind the wheel. They get trained in skid control. They get trained in driving in bad weather. They get trained in maintaining their cars. What we do here is it basically we hand these kids a license and, uh, and then off they go. If we did that, rather than trying to collect more revenue, which is what this is about, perhaps we'd have better results and less road deaths. I'm, I'm amazed. I, I spend 10 to 12 hours a day behind the wheel of a big truck. I'm amazed that the number of deaths in BC and in Canada in general are as low as they are with some of the driving I see. It's amazing. Jim, thank you for a good call. Grant, I'm sure you agree with him. I agree with him. And the first caller, of course, made no sense because, you know, we're talking about federal income tax. So someone somehow has to get that information to the police so that they know how much to charge. So we have more government interference. Uh, I get what he's saying. But we're not talking about pharmacy here. We're talking about roadside with the police with uh, issuing tickets, Uh, apples and oranges. Let's go to Kathy on the line in Langley. Hi, Kathy. What do you think? 
I think it's ridiculous to uh, suggest that we can attach this to uh, income. However, I do think we need to introduce a better measure. Every 10 years, you need to take a road test. I think mm. there's nothing wrong with that. And I think there, if we did that, we would see a, a much better result on our roads. In fact, the, just this past week, I followed a woman who was, had a flat tire for six blocks, never pulled over. I followed her into a shopping center, and she was oblivious, and she was driving in her 80s, and she didn't even know where she was. So we have an obligation to make sure we're keeping our roads safe, and I think that's one piece that we could add. Thank you, Kathy, for that. Squeeze in another call. Ash in Vancouver. Hi, Ash. Go ahead. Hi there. I think we, it, that puts so much power in the police hand. I mean, I had a very bad personal experience coming back from a soccer match. I was driving a somewhat of a fancy car. Police officers, they uh, pulled me over in front of a high rise. I point at the spot uh, to stop. And next thing I know, they're coming at the gunpoint. They Whoa, put a handcuff on me. They Whoa. assume that I'm a drug dealer because I'm driving a fancy car and listening to music. And they rip my cars apart. And then once they figure out that they catch a wrong person, they start giving me bogus tickets. And, and, and it, it was a horrendous experience that I had. And I was wondering, like, why would they pull their guns out? And they give me a ticket because they said, you, you change a lane without having your signal on or something like that. And, 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 and it was, it, it, you just can't give that much power to the police. Okay, Ash, thank you for that. Well, that's a, a, an interesting story. Uh, I'm not sure why an officer would pull a sidearm for a lane change. Uh, Grant, we could do a whole show on that call, but we're out of time. Thank you for your time, though. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Have a great weekend, Mike. All right, time to bring you an update now on a story we talked about earlier in the week, and it's Canada's new alcohol intake guidelines, the new recommended limit, two drinks per week. Not two drinks a day. That was the old limit. The new recommended limit, just two drinks a week. Been a lot of reaction to these New guidelines here. I got Brian Lilly standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen here to the viral video here. This is the guy outside the beer store in St. Catharines, Ontario, talking to CHCH TV about the new two drinks a week limit. Here's what he thought about it. What did you buy today? I bought uh, six Bush Light, six Bud Light, and I love them. Tall boys. Tall boys. Uh, how much would you drink a day? Well, what day? Regular day, I don't know, maybe a couple of beers, depends. Weekends, maybe, you know, five beer. Okay. Two drinks a week. What do you think of that? Well, that's just not uh, feasible, not in this country. Well, come on, man, two drinks a week, what's that going to do for you? I mean, that doesn't even get you through a day. A reasonable amount, if you're, I mean, if you're at home, you be able to have, like, uh, four beer. That's just, uh, that ain't, that's just two more. I mean, I'll have six. But four is a fair number. But there shouldn't even be guidelines anyway. Why are you going to tell me how much I can drink at home? Okay, well, this is one of the questions being asked right now. Is this government-funded agency making these recommended limits? Is this going too far? And why are they telling you how much to drink? And I think some reasonable guidelines are probably a good idea in Canada. But this, boy, this sure is a different guideline from what we had before. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming on. 
Uh, thanks for for being on. I've uh, resisted having a, a beer while we talk because I may have hit my limit for the week. <laughs> well, that's pretty easy to hit the limit with just two a week. What what do you think of this number? Yeah, uh, I think it's um, the new temperance movement. Um, that's mm. what we're dealing with. This is not based on science. This is not based on medical advice. This is a a political document that uses fear mongering and scare tactics to arrive at a position. Uh, is it the government's job to provide advice on how much alcohol is too much when you might be at risk? Absolutely. Uh, we have a, a massive government health system. And uh, just like they have the Canada Food Guide where they make recommendations on, hey, here's how you can eat a healthy diet, help lead to a healthy lifestyle. That's not a bad thing. Having them say, hey, you know, based on, you know, are you a man or a woman? Are you big? Are you small, are you tall, are you fat, what have you. Here, here's, generally speaking, some guidelines around alcohol, or now that we're heavily into cannabis, cannabis consumption. These are all valid things for the government to do, but to have them turn around and say, oh no, any more than two drinks a week, and uh, you really, you should have none, And, and if, but if you have more than two a week, you're going to, you're really going to get cancer. But that's not based well, in reality, well, hang, Mike. Hang on a sec. That, that, they're not saying you're really going to get cancer if you have more than two drinks a week. I mean, they certainly say that your risk for developing cancer or other or other terrible health conditions rises with the more you drink. But so, I mean, they're not predicting uh, that you uh, will get cancer. They, Go ahead. They, they, they really push the message that uh, you are at risk of getting cancer, of tuberculosis, of a stroke, all of these things, and, and they they put it forward. And by the way, this is not the government. Okay, I want to make this clear. Uh, this is not the the government of Canada. It's not the Trudeau Liberals doing this. They funded this group, as all governments have for years. It's the Canadian uh, uh, Center for Substance Abuse. They right. came up with this. Um, but let me give you an example. They say that if you follow the old guidelines, where women were told, you know, to an average of two drinks a week. Um, you know, is reasonable. Well, now they say, well, if you follow that old guideline, you've got a 62.4% increased risk of getting tuberculosis. We have next to no TB in Canada. We have one of the lowest rates of tuberculosis in the world. It's 4.7 cases out of 100,000 at the highest end, which means 62% 62% increase still means you're not going to get tuberculosis. They say on esophageal cancer that if women follow the uh, the guidelines, that they're at um, uh, 89% in, or sorry, or oral and um, uh, pharynx cancer, 89% increase if you follow the old guidelines. Uh, you have very little chance of getting this rare cancer. So these are, are not reputable uh, recommendations. It, it's not based in giving you better information to help you lead a healthier life, which is what they should be doing. It's well, meant to scare you into stopping what is a, a very normal pattern of behavior in Canadian okay. society. Okay, Brian, you make the argument, you, you feel it's the report and the recommendations are not based on science. When you actually read the report, they say that this is a summary of what thousands of different studies that they looked 16. at scientific. Sorry? 16. It's 16 studies. Didn't so they, they say started they, with, they, they yeah, started with 6,000. You yeah. have to read the fine print on these studies, Mike. They yeah. started with 6,000 studies. 
Then they eliminated right. all the ones that they didn't like. And they used 16 <laughs> studies to come up with these um, these recommendations. But they tell you up front, oh, we looked at 6,000 studies. It's right. just that 5,984 of them didn't meet our criteria. Okay. Dan Malik, <laughs> who I, I know you're familiar with, with his opinions on this. He wrote a, a very, uh, he wrote an op-ed on this topic earlier that got a lot of attention. University professor, Brock University. He was a guest on the show earlier this week, and he also questions the methodology here and the number of studies that were looked at. Let's have a listen to what he said to me. Brian, I'll get your thoughts. This is Dan Malik. What they did was they select, they took about 6,000 studies, filtered out most of them, looked at 16, and came up with this number. Um, so it's, uh, it was based upon the idea that alcohol must be harmful, and therefore let's just track the harm. Okay. So he, he made a similar point there. Do you think, though, that, you know, I think there's a danger here in, in if anyone thinks we're trying to underplay the, the harmful impacts of alcohol. Like, I've seen alcoholism up close. I've seen the, mm -hmm. the damage that alcohol can cause to people's health and their families. Uh, so I think there, there certainly is a, a, a room for government, and this is a government-funded agency, as you pointed out, making these recommendations that there should be public policies and public warnings on alcohol consumption, should there not? I don't know uh, what you mean by public warnings and, and, and such like that. I, you know, I think that the CCSA, who's behind this study, I think they want to eventually get to where we are with cigarettes, where we've got plain packaging and you can have no branding, and they want to head in that direction. I, I don't think we need to go there. We all know that alcohol can be dangerous, especially when abused. Right. And I, I don't know if a single family that hasn't been touched by alcoholism or other some, uh, some form of addiction. So absolutely. But my view, Mike, is that this sort of fear mongering and false claims uh, undermines the ability to put forward serious public health messaging. And I don't think that this report is serious. It's alarmist, it's distorting, it's fear-mongering. And, and when you do that, you become like the, the boy who cried wolf. So should we you know, be telling people, look, sometimes you gotta cut back or watch how much you consume. Yeah, just like they, they say when you play the lottery, what's the line, uh, know your limit, play within it. Right. No, know your limit with alcohol and, and, and please moderation. But m m what our even a teetotaling grandmother would have considered moderation in the past is now considered binge drinking by this group. Binge drinking, by the way, is a serious problem. Sure. Absolutely. We should be talking about that. Saying any more than two drinks a week is, is dangerous to your health. Well, at the same time, your city, uh, let's see, uh, we're, what, five days away from legally uh, legalizing fentanyl and heroin, all under the same funding umbrella and regulatory umbrella that's behind this group, Health Canada. <clears throat> so yeah. her heroin and fentanyl are okay, but watch out for that beer. All right. Talking about Canada's new alcohol intake guidelines, two drinks per week, the new recommended limit. My guest, Brian Lilly, phone lines open. What do you think about these guidelines? 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Chris in Penticton. Hi, Chris, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Love your show. Uh, firstly, I think it's absolutely silly about the two drinks uh, a, a week. 
But I think what it is, the government is getting us geared up. There are tax increases that are going to happen every year, April 1st. So they're just saying to us, get ready. So you'll only be able to enjoy two drinks because that's all you're going to be able to afford. That's, that's all you're going to be able to afford. Well, yeah, they have the uh, the automatic tax increases now on alcohol every year, Brian. They got that escalator tax on booze goes up every year automatically, essentially pegged to the inflation rate. I guess maybe that insulates them from a little bit of political heat if they have to go into the House of Commons to raise raise taxes on alcohol. But your thoughts? It does insulate them from political heat. It's why they did that on on um, on alcohol and on cigarettes and why yeah. they've got uh, other similar things. But, you know, I don't think that's why they're uh, backing this study. This study, look, this is a group that, in in my view, has been hijacked by the, the new temperance movement that believes all alcohol is bad. They want the government to move to mandatory minimum pricing. Um, which we have to some degree in Ontario. I don't know the case in BC, but in Ontario, they've got what's called social responsibility. So the government does set a floor to a degree. uh, And under previous liberal governments, they've raised prices using social responsibility. We'll see if the the federal government can't regulate the price of an individual bottle of wine or, or rum or what have you. But you know, we'll see where they go with this. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the labeling. Do we end up yeah. with cigarettes where it's got to be hidden behind a counter and you've got to know that you want your Kendall Jenner tequila uh, when you get to the counter because you can't see it. You're not allowed to. What about warning labels? I know there's a movement for warning labels too, right? Many um, uh, types of alcohol already do have warning labels about pregnancy or about various things. Given that, you know, that, the association that did this wants it you know, to be about the health impacts, yeah. given that I don't believe uh, that they have uh, clearly and accurately portrayed the health impacts of alcohol. I don't think we should listen to them on that. Mm. Um, I, I think that they have been excessive. I, I think there is a way to handle this and get across a message of responsibility without going as far as they have gone and as far as they want to go. Keep calling me on this. Star 9898 is the number on your cell. Denver and Tawasson. Hi, Denver. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Listen, uh, uh, I don't know if you realize, we dropped in the livability scale. We used to be in the top ten every year. Now we're, I don't know, number seven or something. And uh, the other thing is, it's this is the nanny state. You know, it goes from everything from the gun registry to uh, the COVID, you know, regulations. I'm fully vaccinated, but these guys are going too far. This guy's got to go. It's, you know, well, it's- well, we'll see if what kind of if there's any sort of political backlash to it. I, I mean, uh, Brian, your thoughts? I, I I know that the Trudeau government is split on this, and there are some people that are very nervous about where this will go. I have not heard from Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos. Um, Hmm. uh, my understanding is that the previous health minister, Patty Haidu, was very much in favor of this approach. I have not heard that from, uh, Mr. Duclos and, you know, quite frankly, given the reaction of a lot of Canadians, I think the prime minister's office is probably a little bit worried. So, uh, this is a recommendation from an outside group that gets government funding. It's not government policy yet. I think the government should take a sober second look. Okay, David in Kelowna. Hi, David, go ahead. Can you hear me okay, Mike? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Right on. Have you ever watched a magician on stage? 
when a magician's on stage, he's always got a pretty lady, and everybody's watching the pretty lady. Nobody's watching the rabbit. And when governments come out with stuff like this, I, I look at it as like a distraction. There's got to be something else that's more sinister behind this. Uh, you mentioned earlier that they're decriminalizing fentanyl. Like, that's the first time I've heard of that. Um, I really, uh, uh, I see this as probably one big distraction. Again, it's all talking about something that really isn't as important as the major issues. Like, decriminalizing <clears throat> fentanyl, that's a, that's a death drug. Okay, thank you for that. Well, as you pointed out earlier, Brian, this is a group that made this recommendation independently of government, although it is funded by government, and government appoints Mm -hmm. members to its board, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I would just say in response to that claim, uh, don't uh, don't put down to malice what you can put down to um, uh, incompetence. Uh, (laughs) There is no... uh, You and I have covered politics for a long time. Uh, Most of them couldn't organize a a sinister plot if their life depended on it. Okay. Brian, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.